There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Many Canadians know of the incredible bravery and courage that Canadian soldiers showed on the 6th of June, 1944, when the men of 3rd Canadian Infantry Division seized Juneau Beach as part of the largest combined arms operation in the history of the world. This was Operation Overlord, the invasion of Northwest Europe. And while there are many incredible books and a number of podcast episodes and shows talking about this invasion, today's episode is actually the product of a special request from a listener. You see, this longtime listener was recently in Normandy, and when searching for a podcast on D-Day, felt that there was no episode that specifically tackled in any detail the actions of the first day itself, specifically related to the Canadian infantry assault on Juneau Beach. Thus, with the 6th of June only one week away, I thought to do an episode detailing just the actions of that day, with specific focus on Juno Beach and specific focus on 3rd Canadian Infantry Division. So without further ado, here is Season 8, Episode 19, D-Day, 6 June 1944. <music> Today's book recommendation is titled Juno, Canadians at D-Day, 6 June 1944. The author is Ted Barris, and the publisher is Thomas Allen and Sons. The book came out in 2009. So if you were a soldier of 3rd Canadian Infantry Division, by the 6th of June, there's a good chance you were already suffering from seasickness. You see, most of the Canadian infantry had been holed up in their transport ships for several days prior to the invasion, many of them suffering from bouts of seasickness, especially when a bad storm blew in on June 5th, wreaking havoc on the vessels preparing to spearhead the cross-channel assault. This highlights the fact that Overlord was the largest combined arms operation in the history of warfare, meaning it wasn't just about infantry. The Allied navies played a major part in the cross-channel assault, 
and Royal Canadian Naval ships were included in that. The destroyers Algonquin and Sioux bombarded German fortifications along the beaches, while a number of RCN corvettes protected the landing craft as they made their way to shore. Generally speaking, the German Kriegsmarine, that is the German Navy, understood that they were vastly outnumbered, and challenging the massive invasion force would have been near suicidal. Thus, most German ships, not all, but most, remained far away from the invasion fleet. One of the most pressing concerns for the naval force was, in fact, mines. The waters lapping against the Normandy beaches were completely mine-infested, and 247 Allied minesweepers set out to clear 10 lanes towards the Norman coast. This mine-sweeping flotilla included 16 RCN minesweepers. Now, this minesweeper force moved out in the very early morning of 6th of June to carve a path for the invasion force. Most of the RCN minesweepers were actually clearing lanes in front of the American beaches, Omaha and Utah. Roughly 10 kilometers from the Norman shore, while Allied minesweepers were finishing up their important work, Canadian infantry began climbing down into their landing crafts, called Landing Craft Assaults, or LCAs for short. There was five LCAs for each company, and anywhere from 25 to 35 soldiers per craft. Even getting on the LCAs was a challenging task. It was dark, the waters were choppy, and men had to climb down wet ropes with all of their gear on, and we're talking between 50 to 100 pounds of gear per soldier. If a soldier missed a rung on their rope ladder or slipped, they would either be crushed between the hulls of the vessels or sink like a stone. Once in the craft, the men of 3rd Canadian Infantry Division underwent a tense 80-90 to 90 minute journey towards the beaches. Water constantly sloshed over the sides, and the choppy seas meant that many became ill, with vomit and salt water coating the bottom of each LCA. At 0530, an absolute cacophony of thunder rolled out from the channel as the naval bombardment began. Covering the Canadian attack were two British cruisers and 11 destroyers, which actually turned out to be the least amount of naval gunfire for any assaulting division on that day. It should be pointed out that operational planners understood that even the most accurate naval gunfire would have difficulty destroying the deeply reinforced cement bunkers along the Norman coastline, sometimes as much as two to three meters thick. Most of the supporting gunfire from sea was meant to neutralize the enemy, i.e. keep their heads down and keep them immobile while the invading force landed. It wasn't just naval supporting fire, though. Airplanes from the Royal Air Force and the Royal Canadian Air Force were also part of the covering fire. Above Juno, RCAF Typhoon fighters from squadrons 438, 439, and 440 continued dive-bombing enemy targets with their 500-pound bombs. Spitfires and Mustangs also joined in the strafing operations, hitting enemy targets where they could and engaging any Luftwaffe aircraft when they made themselves visible. Thus, 
While the supporting fire may not have been destroying German positions en masse, there was an absolute wall of noise, explosions, and chaos, all intended to pin the Germans down long enough to let the Allied soldiers storm the beaches. Now, the best way to approach understanding the assault on Juno Beach is by dividing it into three sectors, and each sector is based on a coastal village. So, on the Canadian right, and this would be the westernmost flank of the Canadian landing, we have the village of Courcelles-sur-Mer. In the center, we have the town of Bernier-sur-Mer, and on the Canadian left, which is the easternmost Canadian flank, we have the town of Saint-Aubin-sur-Mer. So let's begin on the Canadian right at Courcelles-sur-Mer with the 7th Canadian Infantry Brigade. Courcelles-sur-Mer was a port town that was heavily fortified by the Germans. In fact, it was one of the more heavily fortified port facilities along the entire Norman coast. Five concrete gun positions were the mainstay of the German defensive line, along with numerous machine gun and mortar positions. At about 0750, lead elements of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles and Canadian Scottish Regiment hit the beaches and began their assault against the western part of the village, so this would be the farthest right of the Canadian attack. They were supported by tanks from the 1st Hussars, but those 19 tanks landed about 20 minutes later. Many of these tanks had to essentially swim into the beach using their new duplex drive flotation modifications, and this took some time. The fastest they could go was about four knots an hour. At first, it seemed like the Canadian infantry was going to be in deep trouble, especially without their tanks. None of the supporting fire had destroyed German defensive positions, and the full weight of the German defenses around Courcelles-sur-Mer were brought to bear on the Winnipegs and Canscots. Fifteen German machine guns raked the advance with nearly 500 bullets per minute, while rifle fire, mortar fire, and anti-tank guns added to the defensive wall of metal. Baker Company from the Winnipegs was nearly wiped out within minutes as they were gunned down as they ran down the LCA ramp onto the beach. Some soldiers chose to dig in, others simply froze. While most continued forward, despite the intense enemy fire and the buildup of Canadian bodies. The arrival of the tanks from the Hussars was a major boost to the Canadian advance as they provided significant supporting fire that could be brought to bear directly against German positions. Despite the German barbed wire being nearly 10 feet in depth, the Canadians advanced steadily, finding gaps in the wire and overcoming German position after German position. By 10.30, German resistance on the beach had stopped. Ordered to advance against the eastern defensive positions of Courcelles-sur-Mer were the Regina Rifles whose attack started off gruesomely when two Canadian LCAs were hit by German mortar fire and destroyed before even getting to the beaches. Each LCA carried roughly 25 men. Like their 7th Brigade comrades on their right, the Johns, as the rifles were euphemistically known, faced the full firepower of German defensive positions that had not been knocked out. 
Major Ronald Shawcross from Able Company was able to lead a small party of men across the beaches by timing the reloading of the German machine gunners, run while they reloaded, then drop when they fired. By the time they crossed the 350-meter stretch of sand, he had only four of 25 men left. The Johns were also supported by tanks of the 1st Hussars, and this too made a major difference once they hit the sand. Within 35 minutes, the Regina Rifles had broken out of the beach and made it into the town where some fierce street fighting ensued. Nonetheless, like their colleagues on their right, they had secured their portion of the village by 10.30 a.m., and the beach in front of Corselle-sur-Mer was now in Canadian hands. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Folks, I know that sometimes advertisements can get in the way of a good story, and I hope you're enjoying this good story today. But here at CCH, we never want a good story's momentum broken up. But the bottom line is we rely on advertisements for the financial support needed to continue to make this. That being said, there is a way to access CCH episodes advertisement-free. If you go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and just search Curious Canadian History, you can access all our episodes ad-free by just donating one or two bucks to the podcast. It's easy, safe, and a great way to get this content without the ads. Patreon even has an app, so you can simply use the app on your phone like you would be using any of your podcast apps at all. And you can have every new CCH episode right there at your fingertips. Check out patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and join the club. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Okay, so we've looked at the Canadian right. That's the actions of 7th Canadian Infantry Brigade. But let's look at the assault by 8th CIB starting in the center, anchored around the village of Bernier-sur-Mer. The Queen's own rifles, who were tasked with assaulting Bernier-sur-Mer, delayed their arrival on the beaches by 30 minutes in the hopes of giving their armor time to catch up. But even with this delay, the Queen's own rifles hit the shore at 0812 without their supporting tanks from the Fort Gary Horse. The rifles had to cover 180 meters of beach and interlocking fields of fire before hitting a four and a half meter high seawall. Individual groups of soldiers scrambled forward, taking out whatever gun positions they could get access to. There were undulating sand dunes in front of the village, which provided some cover for the men, but the only true safety was in continually moving forward and knocking out as many German guns as possible. The rifles were being cut down left and right. Canadian soldiers hitting mines, 
being felled by machine gun and rifles, or being cut to pieces by red-hot shrapnel from mortar shells, as well as from German Pac-38s, Pac-40s, and the much-feared German 88s. A deep field of barbed wire protected the seawall, and while some Canadians found uncut sections, these were purposefully left there by the Germans, and these became killing grounds for German rifle and machine gun fire. The enemy fire was so intense that the majority of Queen's Own Rifle's casualties occurred within 15 minutes of landing on the beach. Despite this ferocity, units continued to work together, using fire and movement, and then delivering the knockout blow with grenades when finally close enough to a German position. 20 minutes after the lead elements landed, the reserve companies arrived and the rifles pushed off the beach into the town. Now, on the Canadian left, so this is the easternmost axis of attack, the North Shore Regiment from New Brunswick led the assault on Saint-Aubin-sur-Mer. The key feature to the German defenses here was a thick concrete bunker that housed about 100 men, and while they had certainly been dazed by the naval bombardment, they had survived intact and brought their firepower to bear on the arriving Canadians. The North Shore men used whatever they could to survive, moving in small, short bursts, finding cover from anything from beechwood to metal anti-tank hedgehogs to even the bodies of dead comrades, deftly avoiding mines where possible and then cutting their way through the barbed wire. Like their comrades at the other two landing points, enfilade fire from German machine guns along with shrapnel from German artillery wreaked havoc in the first minutes of landing. Supported by tanks of the Fort Gary Horse, they knocked out German positions one after the other, and slowly but surely, the intense enemy fire began to subside as the enemy were killed and their weapons destroyed. Even when it felt like the beach was becoming secured, German sniping continued as the enemy used a vast underground network of tunnels to pop up in supposedly secure spots where they continued to cause casualties amongst the supporting units that began arriving. A two-hour battle ensued in the subterranean bunkers, where grenades, bayonets, and rifle butts became the weapons of choice. Finally, the clearing party of the North Shore Regiment emerged with 75 German prisoners leaving 25 German dead behind. By 10.30 a.m., 3rd Canadian Infantry Division had secured the beaches, but this in no way meant that the fighting had stopped. Small French villages dotted the landscape, and the Germans had converted each one into a defensive strongpoint. Even as the Canadian soldiers cleared the beach towns, they now faced rifle, machine gun, and artillery fire from behind thick stone Norman walls and from the upper stories of two- and three-story Norman buildings. Canadian parties would advance, make contact, take cover, and use the firepower of Sherman tanks, their mortars, or their artillery to neutralize the enemy. They would then continue their advance, only to do it all over again within minutes at the next village or next German strongpoint. Tough street-by-street fighting erupted in numerous small Norman villages throughout the division's area of operations. 
The beaches that they had just crossed were now vistas of the dead and wounded, the water now turned red by blood. Triage was being done right on the beach in the open, as hundreds of wounded Canadians needed immediate first aid. Meanwhile, moving through the dead and wounded were the supporting units of 3rd Canadian Infantry Division, more infantry, more artillery, and a whole host of tanks and vehicles all heading inland to continue the advance. The whole weight of the Allied military machine came behind that. Thousands of men, thousands of machines, all arriving within hours of the Canadians first hitting the beaches. Beach masters directed what could only have been a chaotic scene of traffic. All the while, German artillery continued to strike the beaches. One of the more heartfelt moments was when the Regiment de la Chaudière arrived. This was the reserve battalion for 8th Canadian Infantry Brigade and began greeting liberated French civilians in their native tongue. The Chaudes, which was an all-French-speaking regiment, secured the left flank of 3rd Canadian Division's area of operations by seizing the village of Beny-sur-Mer a few kilometers inland. Hundreds and soon thousands of French civilians began to cautiously emerge and greet their liberators all along 3rd Division's front. Though it's important to note that fierce fighting raged all around with sniper fire and artillery shells still causing damage in these liberated areas. At this point, Allied naval fire became much more effective as it started to be called down upon German positions. In particular, any counter-attacking force that was building up could be subject to withering Allied naval fire if spotted. The ultimate Canadian objective was the Carpiquet airfield, about 6 kilometers west of Caen and 14 kilometers south of Juneau Beach. But alas, it was not to be secured that day. By the end of the 6th of June, the Canadians had advanced 11 kilometers inland, the farthest out of any Allied formation on that day. But by sunset that evening, Lieutenant General Miles Dempsey, who was in command of the Anglo-Canadian assault, ordered 3rd Canadian Division to dig in and prepare to meet the German counterattacks that were massing just in front of Caen. Ferocious fighting was to come, as the Canadians were now going to beat back waves of German soldiers, particularly the fanatical 12th SS Hitler Youth, before the Canadians could finally begin to claw their way towards Caen and beyond. On the 6th of June, 3rd Canadian Infantry Division captured Juneau Beach. 359 soldiers were killed, 715 wounded, many of them within the first 30 minutes of landing. Though small consolation to the families of those lost and wounded, the casualties were about half of what was predicted by operational planners. On the 6th of June 1944, 150,000 Allied soldiers breached the Atlantic Wall. With them came the full weight of the Allied war machine. 900 tanks, 5,000 guns and vehicles on that day alone, with so many more on their way. The German hope of pushing the Allies back into the sea was dashed on that 6th of June. The liberation of Northwest Europe had begun, and the fate of the world would change irrevocably. 
I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious, friends.